Looking to buy or sell a home? Make sure you have the knowledge you need with a professional home inspection from National Property Inspections Fort Wayne, covering hundreds of homes' vital systems from roof to foundation. MPI also offers radon, mold, and pest inspections to give you complete peace of mind. Plus, every home inspection comes with a free six-month warranty. NPI is a veteran-owned, family-operated business that's proud to serve our local community. Call 260-705-9835 to schedule your inspection with MPI, Fort Wayne's premier home inspection service. Get $25 off your home inspection when you mention code NPI25. Hey there, my name is Tyler Morningstar, and I'm here with my co-host and mom, Carrie Morningstar. This is the Selling Fort Wayne podcast. This podcast is focused on all things real estate related in and around the Fort Wayne area. We'll also touch on some community events and some community outreach as well. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Welcome to the Selling Fort Wayne podcast. I am one of your hosts, Tyler Morningstar, with my co-host and mother, Carrie Morningstar. Mom, you want to tell them about our guest today? And another, she, she's returning, a returning guest. Yes. And again, one of my most favorite people, Margaret Sklenar from Metropolitan Title. We've known each other many, many years. She handles all of my business way back to the Columbia was it Columbia Land Title? Columbia Land Title. And we're going to be talking about something really exciting, short sales and foreclosures. Yikes. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's uh, for the people who haven't listened to you before, kind of give us a short background of, of your uh, you know expertise. I'm Margaret Sklenar with Metropolitan Title Company, and I probably am one of the oldest closers in northern Indiana. I've been around for many, many years, and I've owned multiple title insurance and escrow companies throughout the state. I currently am one of the owners of Metropolitan Title Company, and I am somebody that a lot of people call on to solve real estate problems because I can generally find a way to help people. That's what I do. And does it very well, I might add. I would agree. Thank you. Let's jump right in. So we're going to talk about short sales and foreclosures, particularly short sales. So what exactly is a home short sale and how does it differ from a traditional real estate transaction? A short sale is when the seller is going to sell their property and they don't have enough money to pay off their mortgage. And there's a lot of reasons why that can happen. You know, the public thinks that if someone can't pay off their mortgage, it's because they're a deadbeat or because they just have been totally irresponsible financially. That is the case in some regards, but in other regards, not necessarily so. There's always a lot of circumstances that surround short sales, but ultimately we work to help the lender accept the money that the seller can get out of their house in order to satisfy the debt and not have the seller go through foreclosure proceedings. When you do a short sale, Margaret, is it true that if the person is 
the the they're giving less than what the mortgage amount uh, is that they owe the bank. Will they have to pay taxes on that money that's given to them? You know, that's an interesting question. The government has kind of flip-flopped back and forth with that over the years. You know, when the mortgage market failed in 2008 to 2012, we saw a great deal of short sales. And at first, the government didn't really know what to do with them. And it got to the point, there was some legislation that was passed, and I'd have to check to make sure that's still in place. But... Um, the shortfall between the payoff, what they really owed, and what was satisfied with the bank could be taxable. So it would depend on whether it's an FHA payoff, a VA payoff, a conventional payoff. There's some criteria, but that is very important to find out at the beginning of the short sale. You know, if the seller is already in financial trouble and we get their short sale Um, finished for them and they're able to move on. The worst thing in the world is come January, they get taxed for a gift. It's considered a gift sometimes. Mm. So we'd have to be careful. Yeah. So we'd have to kind of ferret that out to see if it's taxable or not. But that is something that a lot of people don't bother to ask the questions. So good question. What are the key steps involved in a home short sale process and what challenges can arise along the way? So keep in mind when a seller is um, working on a short sale, they don't have enough money to pay the lender off. The lender feels like they've already been defrauded once, whether the appraisal was too high when the people purchased the property. You know, there's a myriad of reasons. But the, sell- but the lender wants to make sure that the seller is not defrauding them. They want to make sure that everybody involved in the transaction is up and up. So keep in mind that what we're having to do is we're applying to the lender to get out of the, get out of the payment of the loan <clears throat> or partial payment of the loan. So where people get really, really frustrated with the short sale process is we actually have to fill out a financial statement. And a lot of lenders have their own short sale packages, but they want us to fill out a financial statement showing how much money is coming in to the consumer, how much is going out on a monthly basis. They want to see their pay stubs. They want the last two months of pay stubs. They want the last two months bank statements front and back not the things you pull off the internet. They want the actual bank statements. They want a hardship letter. They want to know why the people are having the problem and why there isn't enough money to pay off the bank. So we're actually doing a comprehensive um, application to get the lender to consider why they should let the people out of paying the full mortgage amount that's owed. When you're talking about like the lender, I've gone through a couple short sales before and there's different departments through the lender. Is there not, like, I, I had one where we got hung up on the PMI right. um, uh, department where they weren't going to allow it. Can you kind of explain how that goes? Because isn't there, like, different departments through the short sale or different areas they have to go through? There is different uh, departments. If there's PMI, like you mentioned, First of all, we get the lender to approve the short sale and we think that we're home free and we're going to be able to close. Well, if there's any PMI insurance on that loan, that PMI company also has to approve that short sale. Mm. And so you've got two approval processes to go through. If it's VA or FHA, then it can be mitigated by the lender themselves because most of those loans are direct loans. 
But if there's PMI, you've got two departments that you actually have to get through. And then if there's a second mortgage on the property, that can cause another stumbling block because most short sale lenders are only going to allow close to $5,000. Let's just use that as a round number to pay off a second. Well, if the second mortgage holder is old, owed fifty, sixty thousand dollars they may not agree to release their lien for $5,000. So when there's a first and second as well, we've got two approval processes. And then you have some that have three mortgages. Mm. And the third mm. mortgage holder ends up not really getting anything. So, you know, we, we have to try to convince the, all those lenders to understand if it goes to foreclosure, the only lender that's going to get any money is that first mortgage holder. Even though that second and third mortgage holder has a mortgage on the property, when the foreclosure happens, they're going to get nothing. Hmm. That's why short sales take so long. Mm -hmm. I know the the one I was speaking about. We waited seven months mm -hmm. yeah, to get something through. Six for one that I did. So, well, and a lot of lenders, you know, when I started doing short sales, probably, gosh, before they were. In, called short sales in 2005, 2006. We didn't know what to do with them. And so to call a lender and ask them to settle for less money than what was owed was not your normal cause of business. And these lenders didn't know what to do with people like me, you know, trying to call and, and to get to somebody that can make a decision like that. Mm. And then they were called short sales. Well, keep in mind, you know, in the last few years, we've had a lot of great years in the real estate market. So all those people, including my own staff that knew how to do short sales, have moved on. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows how to do those again. Mm -hmm. Right now, I'm currently working on 10 short sales myself. I think we have more in my company, but I'm working on 10. And I have three lenders that don't know what to do with me. It's like we've just reinvented the wheel when it comes to the short sale process. They're having to get up to speed. I have the other seven lenders there. The people are great. We're going to get those all taken care of in a matter of probably 60, 90 days. But these lenders that don't know what to do with a short sale currently, that's where we're going to have a problem again. Hmm. I think part of the problem is um, uh, the consumer thinks that real estate's so good, and agents for that fact, that there's no reason to think about a short sale or a foreclosure. But I feel like what's happened in the last few years with people overpaying just because of what our market demanded, paying these appraisal gaps, taking homes with no inspections, we're going to see a little bit more of that happening because they've used all their equity in the house and now the roof, they need a roof or they need a furnace. And uh, I think we're going to see more and more things start to crumble a little bit, but I hate to be a doomsayer. Okay. Well, the, the market still is not, it, it, you know, we actually live in a great spot because um, Fort Wayne and Northeast Indiana brings in 5% more people every year. It's such a great spot to live. But it's not that way in a lot of communities. In fact, we're one of the few communities in the Midwest region that things are that good for us. But in a lot of areas of the, of the country, finances are unstable. 
I mean, you have inflation, you have rising interest rates, you have people that have families of four that are barely able to make ends meet. Housing in Fort Wayne, Indiana, because it's such a fabulous place to live, it's really hard to find housing that's affordable. And so there, there's a lot of instability in the marketplace that I don't think people are aware of. Some commercial lenders have quit lending uh, because of the rising interest rates. So it seems like real estate is great, but maybe not so much so. We are starting to see short sales and foreclosures again. Well, and I know from my own experience, like I'm working with this gal for three years. She's a first time home buyer and she just can't, she can't compete FHA loan. And she just can't, she can't compete. You go look at these houses and the ones that are good are maybe right at her top of her budget and, or other people are like waving inspections and she can't, she can't do that. So for three years, she's just trying to do something. So it's that first time home buyer, the one that's really getting squeezed right now. Oh, the first time home buyer, unless they have a parent that right. can can fork over cash mm-hmm. or pull equity out of their house to help mm-hmm. those people, the FHA buyers, the the VA buyers, all of those people are struggling right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think what I've had several people say, I'm just going to wait until the interest rates come down. I don't think we're ever going to see the interest rates go down myself. Historically, they've been at 8%. You know, we're just kind of getting back to where we were. We were... I don't know, in some sort of little bubble. And I just don't foresee our interest rates going down, but that's just me. You know, I was closing loans at 17 and 18% in the late 70s and the early 80s. That's so bonkers. (laughs) Now, now we weren't closing a lot of traditional financing. We were closing a lot of contracts and assumptions and things like that. But um, people still have to have a house to live in. So every time I hear someone say, oh my God, I'd never pay more than 2% interest on a home, it kind of cracks me up because yeah, you would. Mm-hmm. I mean, housing- when you need a house. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Which then will bring us into assumables. Yeah, you want to kind of talk about that real quick? I, I well, will. Well, wait, are we done with short sales? Are no. you done with all your questions? Should we do one, one topic at a time, my oh, son? Oh, it's a good segue. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> Well, I actually just taught a class for the Upstar Board of Realtors about assumptions, you know, um, and I I did some similarities. If you look at what happened economically in the late 70s and early 80s, it is similar to what's happened in 2022 and 23 with the rapid rise of interest rates, you know, 5% interest rates, um, they've gone up. There is a demand for housing. There are people who don't want to sell because they say, where would we go and where would we get another 2 to 3% interest rate? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of similarities of things that happen. And that's the beauty of real estate is that we always find a way to sell real estate despite the economic times. So my suggestion is that you, if someone wants to sell, find out what kind of a mortgage they have. You know, back in, I think, in the early 80s, the government stopped assumptions on conventional loans. I mean, think about it. Back then, the the rates were 17 and 18%. So most people were not opting to get those kinds of mortgages. So what they were doing is they were assuming out the outstanding mortgages that were out there at 4 5 6%, whatever they were. Well, the government 
obviously caught wind of that and figured out financially that wasn't good for the stability of the financial of the banks and institutions. And so they stopped um, conventional loans from being assumable. Now, FHA and VA continued to allow assumptions. Hmm. And in fact, I just did an assumption package last week for a VA assumption. Um, But if the new buyer has the difference between what's owed on the mortgage balance and the sales price, whether it's their own money, parents' money, it doesn't matter because the mortgage isn't going to change. You're not going to have the standard underwriting practices of getting a new mortgage. That mortgage is going to stay on that property. And if you can get, you know, all those mortgages that we closed at two, three, three and a half percent, if they're FHA and VA, which is about 20% of the market out there, they are assumable. Hmm. That's interesting. Great marketing tool. Very interesting. Let's swing back to short sales. So if I'm, you know, for whatever various reason in some sort of financial hardship, what's the tipping point for me to kind of like start to look at short sales and consider short sales? Like, is there, or is there, is there some other things I should consider first or is short sale probably my best option? If you don't want to stay in the property or you're unable to stay in the property and you are unable to ever meet the mortgage payments or if you are unable to take care of the property, if for some reason you're you've become handicapped or there's mitigating circumstances that the property is not going to work for you anymore, that would be a good reason to do a short sale if there's not enough money to pay off the mortgage. So I try to help people through short sales so that they don't have to face foreclosure, especially if the consumer is young enough that they're going to get another mortgage again. Because if you have a foreclosure against you. I you know, I'm not a lender, but it's got to be many, many years before you're considered to be a um, an eligible risk for a lender to consider writing a new mortgage for you. So if we can save the consumer from a foreclosure against their credit, it is a great opportunity to help the consumer. Mm-hmm. And if they're going to leave the property, some um, some programs like FHA and VA, they will almost pay cash. It's like cash for keys or keys for cash or whatever that program is. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's an incentive for the consumer to help the lender get through the short sale process. If the consumer will cooperate, we've seen that lenders have given people up to $10,000. Mm. And it's not 10000 all the time. So I, I sure. don't want people to think that that's a standard, but usually two or $3,000. Mm. And that's enough to get somebody at least partway on their feet and get them out from underneath the financial obligation of that mortgage. And that means without stripping the house. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Without stripping the copper and the faucets and the doors (laughs) and everything off. Yeah, that's not helpful. So let's swing into a buyer's perspective on short sales. What are some things that a buyer, if they're interested in a home, it's a short sale, what are some things they need to consider or think about or know ahead of time before they jump into the ring with that? 
Well, buyers have to understand that this is not going to be a short process. Even though it's called a short sale. Right, right. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, I get offers that realtors write that say that they have to know within two weeks, the buyer's demanding to know within two weeks whether the short sale is approved. It's not going to happen in two weeks. I mean, mm -hmm. I got to tell you with these lenders, by the time I send in an authorization just for a lender to talk to me, it's going to take them three weeks to recognize that there's an authorization sitting there. Mm -hmm. It is a very slow process. Mm -hmm. So if a buyer wants to get into a property within 30 or 60 days, a short sale is not for them. Yeah. <laughs> it, it just is not for them. If they want... If they are a first-time home buyer and they want a house that um, doesn't have any problems, that's not the house for them either. You can't write a short sale offer. I mean, the lender's already losing money. You ca we cannot submit an offer to a lender that the buyer is asking for $5,000 in repairs and that the buyer wants $5,000 in closing costs paid. and and various other things like that. It has to be a buyer that has the fortitude to wait and the time to wait to get the short sale around and also knowing that they're not going to get any concessions from the lender, mm -hmm. from the seller or the lender. Awesome. So let me ask another question. So we talked about short sales because we want to avoid foreclosure, right? But let's mm -hmm. say we can't avoid foreclosure, can't do a short sale. How does that process work? Well, when a property is foreclosed upon, it is, Indiana is a judicial foreclosure state. So what that means is a lawsuit has to be filed. Mm. All right. So we file a mortgage. And in order to foreclose against a mortgage, then the bank is going to hire an attorney and they are going to file foreclosure proceedings. They'll do that according to the note and the mortgage. In particular, the mortgage, usually, I mean, all of you that come to closing, the last thing you're going to want to do is read the buyer's, your new buyer's mortgage. Um, <laughs> they don't even want to read it. No. <laughs> you got to sign it to get it, so you might as well just sign it. Right. But if you read it, a lot of the, the mortgages are set up that if the borrower fails to make the mortgage payment within 90 days or 120 days, the lender has the right to start foreclosure proceedings. Now, once the foreclosure proceedings are filed, those proceedings list everyone who has an interest in the property. So if there's a second mortgage holder, they'll be listed in the lawsuit. If there's back taxes that haven't been paid, the treasurer will be listed. If they have an IRS lien, the Internal Revenue Service will be listed. And so what happens through the foreclosure process and which is why it's helpful if someone ever wants to buy a property that has gone through foreclosure, is that everyone that is list every entity that's listed as a lien holder against the real estate, once a foreclosure is done um, and there's been a foreclosure judgment tendered, then all of those all those interests go away. It really scrubs the title. Um, as long as all of the entities who have an interest in the property are listed. Now, that foreclosure process can take anywhere from six months. I've seen them when we were at the height of short sales in 2010 through 2012. It might take two years to get through the foreclosure process because there were so many properties that were being foreclosed upon that there wasn't enough 
attorneys and mm-hmm. enough people to really do the work to take care of all of that. But it is a judicial process, and it takes time and it takes money, and the lenders pay for that. Mm-hmm. So you said Indiana is a judicial what was the term? A judicial foreclosure state. What are the other types? Non-judicial, which means that their um, their foreclosure proceedings are set up in what's called a deed of trust. We're not a deed of trust state because we're a judicial state. Um, I'm trying to think. I think Kentucky might be a um, non-judicial state, but you know, the difference you'll be able to tell is whether a mortgage has been filed or a deed of trust has been filed. Mm. And people think a deed of trust is a deed, a transfer of title. It's not. It's a form of a mortgage. Mm. And are those the only two types? It is. Gotcha. Okay. Interesting. Mm. So what it sounds like to me, the synopsis of today is try to do a... Uh, an assumable, then short sale, <laughs> and then foreclosure. <laughs> Sounds like if before you think about those two things, see if your loan is assumable. Absolutely. And call a real estate agent. Oh, please. <laughs> please call a real estate agent. Absolutely. Do you know of one, Tyler? Yeah, I know of a really, really good one. Um, old as bones. <laughs> when she coughs, dust comes out. But her <sighs> name is Carrie Morningstar. Oh, thank you, honey. Two six zero four one zero eight two nine four. I would give you kudos, but I can't remember your phone number. <laughs> I put it in my phone, so I can't even. I gotta look it up. So, okay. or if you want my, I'll let you just shine. It's okay, fine. Okay, thank you so much, <laughs> Margaret. Thank you for coming on. Um, that was a lot of good information. I think that that was really helpful. Um, you know, because. Like we talked about a little bit briefly, there's a possibility that we might see some short sales coming here. And that way people kind of know, okay, this is kind of how those work. And you know, for those who are first time listeners, a lot of people will ask me, what's title insurance? So before we get off of that yeah, real quick, I, mean, yeah, I just want to just well. hit Margaret up for that because I'll have people say, I have homeowner's insurance. I don't need title insurance. Or why does this, the a buyer have to have a lender's policy. Can you touch on that just a little bit, Margaret? I can. You know, I spend a lot of my days trying to untangle people's title. People who don't use professionals when they purchase real estate, whether it be a real estate agent or a title company, they, I can think of probably five I've got on my desk right now that People, you know, they have a friend who wants to sell them a piece of real estate, real estate super easy, so they just go ahead and buy it. Well, then they go and fix it up or do whatever they're going to do with it, and then they get ready to sell it. Well, when they sell it, the new buyer is probably a little more more intuitive than maybe they were when they purchased it, and they insist on getting title insurance, which means we're going to insure the property. We're going to look at all the liens. We're going to look at all the blemishes. We're going to get all those eradicated so that when the seller comes to closing with the buyer and the buyer tenders their money, the buyer has title free and clear. Because no seller, no buyer wants to buy a piece of property that there's blemishes and there's problems with. But these ones that I'm talking about, you know, they don't use any professionals. I got a guy right now that he bought a piece of property for $5,000. Great steal. You know, you look at the the um, assessor's card 
and there it's being taxed $50,000. So he thinks he's got this really great deal, right? Mm-hmm. He finds a buyer, cash buyer, but the cash buyer wants a, wants a title company. Mm-hmm. So we run title. There is $195,000 worth of liens against that property, oh valid gosh. liens. Mortgages that may still be, actually two of them are still um, in force. A couple of the other ones we've tracked down and we're going to get releases on. They were just never released of record. But this seller that sold him the property had, he was a deadbeat. He had judgments out the yin yang, including IRS liens. Mm. And those don't go away. So mm. he spent all this money, this $5,000, and I think he's probably dumped $50,000 of his own money into it on a piece of property that because he didn't get title insurance or get professionals to help him, he can't sell until all of those are oh, taken care of. my gosh. So, I mean, it happens all the time. And that's what I tell people when with uh, title insurance. You're making sure as the seller that no one's put a lien against you because you'll be surprised. Sometimes you'll pull your work and you'll see that maybe you have a mechanic's lien against it or against your name. Because mm-hmm. I've had buyers, they'll go, why do we need to get a lender's policy? Make sure that you're, nothing's attached to your name. So when you uh, acquire this mortgage, you know they know that they're the first lien holder and they'll go, I didn't know this. I, this guy did some work for me. I thought I paid him and he filed a lien against me. So it, it's just to make sure it's a precautionary measure for everyone that everything is clean when you go to title and you do the warranty. You know, the other thing too, um, I have had people ask me who come from out of state, why do you use a title company and not an attorney? Somebody came from Illinois and they said, hey, Mm -hmm. we only use uh, attorneys. And I was telling them it's because you have an attorney on staff. But could you elaborate a little bit more on that too, please? I can. We do have attorneys on staff. We have five um, currently, and all they do all day is help us and help realtors and buyers and sellers get through the real estate process and fix title, make sure that everything is free and clear. But some states are attorney states. And by that, I mean like Illinois, they're an attorney state, which means um, title companies don't close those transactions, attorneys do. So North Carolina, South Carolina, some of those states are also attorney states, but it just is a matter of state law and it's a matter of custom. In Indiana, we trust everybody. You know, we we even fund, we do what's called a round table funding. Um, a lot of states close in escrow where they collect the money, they pay off the mortgage, they pay the taxes, they pay any liens, they wait for releases to come for all of those things. And then once all of that's recorded and taken care of, then they'll release the proceeds to the to the seller and to the agents and to pay you know any other things that have to be paid. In Indiana, we don't handle closings that way. We trust everybody. Hmm. We go ahead and pass money out of the table all the time. How many times have we had <laughs> closings back to back? Oh, you know because somebody bought one house or sold one and buying another one, and they just use the proceeds, and you guys right. just roll it right over. Yeah, and how it, fortunate we are. Yeah, we're very fortunate here, um, and we do we trust everybody, but it just depends on the custom and the state laws. You know, the Iowa, they they're attorneys have made sure that their state laws have out, basically outlawed title insurance. So they still do abstracts and certificates of title and things like that. So again, it's it's about state law and the customs. Hmm. 
Speaking of abstracts, back in the day when I started, you, people would give you their abstracts so they could get a discount on title you know, insurance. So we would start becoming modernized. I don't know if anyone's read any of those, but they're very interesting. You, you know, I use abstracts when I train title people because those abstracts actually go back to the original land charters in this area. It's, you know, in the 1820s to 1830s, depending. And you, you can see where the original land charters, the the when the government deeded that to the original settlers, they didn't they didn't deed them lot 22 in Tyler's edition. There was no such thing. They deeded them 160 acre tracks or 200 acre tracks or whatever it was. And as you follow the abstracts, it it is every document that affects the history of the real estate who owned it, um, who was not able to own it, like women weren't able to own real estate for a long, long time, and it got passed on um, from son to son. But it's really, really interesting to read those and to see how the 200-acre track became a 100-acre track, and then it became you know, all the way down to, I don't know what the standard lot size is, but it's really interesting to see that. And you can't find those hardly anymore. The other thing too is it's fun to look at some of the names because then you see where our street names came from, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I was always though perplexed by Dribblebiss. <laughs> it was a gentleman. He was an attorney. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Well, again, Margaret, thank you so much for your time. We always learn so much. When Tyler and I walk away, we're going, aren't we glad we had Margaret here today? Well, that's what I was going to say. There's nobody better in the title business than Margaret. So, you know, if you've got questions about title work, you want to give them a phone number, or email? Absolutely. Um, thank you for saying that, by the way. Um, my phone number is 260-497-9469. Email address is msk. L E N A R at Metro T C I dot com. Yeah, if you've got title questions, Margaret is the person to talk to. There's no doubt about that. Uh, thank you, Margaret. Thank you. Wait, I just want to say one more thing about yeah. Margaret. Nothing's better when you're getting a purchase agreement and you see at the bottom where it says, or during the, and it says, getting title work at Metro because you know it'll close. Thank you. It's very That's true. The truth. If you guys have any questions, comments, concerns, our email is still selling Fort Wayne. No, what is it? Well, I don't even, I don't even know our email anymore because you're asking the wrong person. I don't even know selling your telephone FW, number. Yeah, you don't even know what's going on. It's selling <laughs> fwpodcast at gmail.com. We're just lucky if you show up on time. <laughs> yeah, I was only two minutes late today. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. Thank you.